Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 59, and Alvaro is back from his trip. Yay! <laughs> Yay. So um, you did a venture through Jordan and through um, Israel, was it? Yeah, it was. It was a very, very memorable trip. <laughs> yeah, and we sort of, last time you were here, we were talking about what you had packed and what you were expecting. So tell us about the trip. Did it, did it go according to plan? Did, did the camera gear work out? How was it? Well, luckily nobody was hurt in, du- during the trip, which was one of my main concerns, considering the, the kind of people I was traveling with. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, every, everybody got home safe and uh, we had a great time. And in terms of camera gear, I'm happy to say I didn't have any issues. I think I mentioned that I was planning to take the uh, new 24-70 GM that I that I just got. Yeah. And also the 70-200 and the little 35-28, you know, for those days when I just wanted to walk around without the entire kit with me. For sure, yeah. And that turned out to be a really great choice. There's a difference between the setup I said I would take and what I ended up taking, though, which is that I took the sling with me. Oh. <laughs> and it turned out okay. to be actually a really good choice because it's been my most used bag by far. Like I think I only use the backpack one day and all the other days I make do I may do with the sling. Nice. It it's really surprised me how comfortable it is, even when it's fully loaded. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be that convenient, but it totally was. So I'm really, really happy <laughs> that, that I took it. Yeah, it's a great bag. And yours is the 10 liter, right? Yeah, it is a 10 liter. Yeah. Uh, the beauty of it is that it packs flat, so you can just compress it, uh, stick it in the main suitcase, and it doesn't really take up much extra space or weight. Yeah, that's always an advantage with yeah with non-shaped bags. You always get that, that packability advantage. Yeah, and I like that. I like carrying a smaller bag with me, you know, to act as a sort of a day bag or when I don't want to take all the all the lenses or, or all the other stuff, you know, so it was, it was great to have. And, uh, like I said, no, no big issues. I was a bit concerned because I would be, de- I would have to deal with, uh, extreme weather. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, which was absolutely the case. I mean, we had temperatures of like 45 degrees Celsius, uh, with, uh, really no humidity at all because it, we were in the Jordan desert. Of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Wadi Rum desert. It is so dry and so hot uh, that I was a bit concerned because Sony cameras haven't been the best when it comes to overheating. Right. Yeah. Uh, but thankfully, I didn't have any issues. Not oh, even good. in the full-on uh, mid hours of the day, where when the heat was uh, the worst. I, yeah, it, it was fine. It was totally fine. That's awesome. I don't record video, so that's when you really stress out the camera. Yeah, I mean that's and, and that's where that, you so. yeah that's that's where most of the heat complaints that I've read about um, are centered around because it's uh, you know recording 4K in particular is produces a lot of heat from the sensor so yeah. yeah but since you weren't doing that and in terms of weather sealing it was totally fine uh, because conditions changed dramatically in, in Tel Aviv we had like close to 40 degrees but a lot of humidity. So, because it's right at the sea, so sure. it was so humid, and uh, even then, the I didn't have any issues at all with the camera. Or you know, I took the camera everywhere with me. I I tried not to switch lenses often. Uh, I ended up using the twenty four to seventy for like ninety percent of the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Only occasionally switched over to the seventy to two hundred when I needed to capture a couple uh, long landscape shots, and then uh, a couple of days I took the small thirty five on a walk with me. 
But aside from that, it was a 24 to 70 all the way, which is a really great lens. I'm very, very happy I got it. And it was a perfect choice for the trip. So all weather sealed, had no issues. Uh, I managed to work around the focal range that I had. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, even in Petra, you know, amazing place, one of the best places I've ever visited. I absolutely recommend everyone listening, if you have a chance to go there, please do, because it's a once in a lifetime experience. Uh, the, the problem with Petra is that the main place you want to capture is the treasury. And it's pretty... It's quite a walk. It's, it's secluded. It's, you have to walk through a canyon and then you don't have that much space to capture the whole thing. I was shooting at 24 mils and still had to back up pretty much. I had my back right, uh, up against the, the opposite wall. So I didn't really have <laughs> much margin to play with, but it worked. And um, that's... I think that's the the closest I've been to wishing I had a wider angle lens with me, but right. 24 was fine. Did you end up stitching? Because I know that you're actually, that's one of your main techniques when you're trying to get a wider perspective. You just stitch together a panorama. Yeah, I did try. Uh, I have to go through the images in post. I have a few shots ready to be stitched together. I don't know how well they'll turn out, uh, but I'll, I'll totally try and... I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah, because I find that in situations like that where you have a little bit of time, like you're not, you know, there's no, there's no um, time pressure. Hmm. Um, stitching is is a perfectly viable um, approach, especially since Photoshop and and the other more specialized tools are so good at stitching images together now yeah. and, and equalizing tonal ranges and things. Especially if you if you shoot them um, with you know white balance and exposure and everything like that locked. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. like a perfectly yeah, viable yeah. It's a perfectly viable way to get wider angles without having a dedicated um, wider angle lens. So that makes sense. It's true, but I I find it works better uh, when you're using a, a like a longer lens when you're shooting at a telephoto range and then you stitch a few of those together, it works better because the lines converge a little bit less. Yeah, less distortion And it's to easier with. for Photoshop to stitch those together. If you're working with a wider angle, the perspective can change quite a bit, even just by twisting, uh, you know, the camera to one side or the other. Right. You get a different perspective and sometimes Lightroom and Photoshop can struggle to reconstruct those. Uh, it usually works, but... It, it's just to say, if you're trying to stitch together a few uh, pictures taken at, say, 24 mil, maybe it's better to zoom in a little bit and try to take a few more pictures at 35 mil and see if you can get to the same point, but shooting with a bit, a bit of a longer lens. Uh, that's tended to work out better in my experience. Do you think it was worth bringing the other two lenses? Because it sounds like you had the 24 to 70 on most of the time and you you already said that you worked around the the focal range. Do you do you think that it was, you know, like if you were to do a similar kind of trip, would you bother with the 70 to 200 and the and the smaller 35? I would. I would because the 70 to 200 I just love and uh, even though I uh, I didn't use it that much in this trip, I still liked having it. Right. You know, I, I did complete I did really use it on one of the Jerusalem days. Uh we walked to a nearby uh mount where you can see the view of the entire city and uh, that's when when I switched lenses and uh captured a few landscape shots with the 70 to 200 which I think are going to turn out pretty pretty great. And I'm going to switch together a few of those. Awesome. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I'm happy I took it. I don't mind carrying the extra weight because honestly, it's not really that heavy. Yeah. And 35 is so small and and so light that it basically comes 
for free. So yeah, it's true. That one I guess doesn't count. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't really add bulk or anything. So it's not. It's not inconvenient to bring. So yeah. So all in all, a great trip. Yeah, I'd say so. At least in the photography side of, of things, it was uneventful, which is really what you want it to be. Yeah, I guess and so. And <laughs> then in terms of, in terms of personal enjoyment, uh, it was great too. So yeah, absolutely Amazing. recommend it. Well, while you were gone, we um, we of course got the the Nikon unveiling. Um, we now yeah. understand their their mirrorless um, offering much better. Um, we've got all the news, we've got all the specs, and we've had just about enough time post um, announcement for the initial impression reviews to start coming out and for people to start really examining the specifications and and starting to make you know uh, draw some conclusions about how successful they think it's going to be. Um, so I figured we'd just dig in a little bit, talk about it, give our um, our impressions as well. Um, but what was your initial reaction um, seeing what they what they put out? Well, I, I, I just put my Sony on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Uh, I think it's great news, great news for the industry. I was it's been a long time coming, and uh, I think the end, the final product shows that Nikon didn't rush it, that they took their time and and waited until they had something they felt was compelling enough to bring to market. And, right. and, and this is 2018 market, right? This is, they knew, everybody knew that it, a first effort uh, that would have been maybe like three, four years behind in terms of technology, it just wouldn't have cut it. Yep. So um, I think they did the right thing. It's very difficult to build a new system from scratch, but I think they hit most of the of the checkboxes. I think the most important part was providing full compatibility with their existing range of lenses, which is crucial today. And and they did that. The the new adapter seems to work pretty well. Uh, I mean, we still don't know it's it's early days, but but I'm hopeful. And I think the entire industry benefits from having Nikon be in a strong position and bringing innovations to market and as always, the rest of the industry will have to adapt and respond, and I'm excited to see what the other what the other guys do. But in terms of the actual news that we have uh, to discuss today, um, there's some hiccups, but overall, I'm pretty happy. How about you? I like it. I, I think that it's um, it's kind of the uh, in terms of the design of it, it's it's sort of what I was hoping for from uh, from Nikon and Canon in terms of a mirrorless offering. It's it's essentially. Um, a, a large-sized camera that maintains a lot of the ergonomic benefits of DSLRs, but you know removes the mirror and uses the extra space for other things like you know a right. very good apparently a very good EVF. Um, the mount is is enormous, um, hmm. and that's going to allow them to do some interesting things with optics. I think the I think the engineers are very excited. I mean, they they sort of teased the uh, 58 millimeter f 0.95 lens, which is crazy. Uh, you know, it's yeah, it's it's cra- it's impractical, but it is very cool. It will be a feat of engineering. It will be a, a status symbol. Um, but there there are probably also more um, practical, pragmatic um, advantages that they can that they can bring to the market. Um, things like smaller ultra wide angle lenses potentially. Um, you know, it, we'll, we'll see where they take it. I mean, they did actually, I, I appreciated that they put out a lens roadmap as well um, with the announcement. And that kind of yeah. lays out the next two two or three years worth of, of um, planned lenses. And it seems, you know, like I think by 2020, um, this new uh, mount will have 
most of the basics covered, I would say. Yeah, it's ambitious. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's the other. It's an ambitious road. Man. That's the other side of it is whether they'll manage to to get everything to market in that time frame because there's there's a lot of lenses on there. Um, yeah, and it's not enough to release the lenses; they actually have to be good. Yes, there's that. <laughs> so sometimes you can't rush that. Uh, yeah, and or you really shouldn't rush that, and I, it's still too soon to comment on image quality or AF performance. We've seen some reviewers uh, sort of make these, you know, uh, hands-on videos and, and articles where they try to uh, assess the performance of the camera. I think it's too early for that. It, it, this is still a pre-production model. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt until they hit release. And uh, yeah, but so far we've seen things that are a little concerning, like the 24-70 lens doesn't appear to be very sharp, according to Tony Northrup and Chelsea Northrup. Yep. Uh, and the AF performance seems to struggle a little bit. But like I said, I think these people are just reading way too much into it way too early. So... Yeah. On the other hand, they made a good point. They they recently released um, a sort of follow-up to their initial impressions video, and they pointed out that this was not presented to them as a pre-production camera. It's pre-production right. in the sense that they have it before we do, but the firmware is version 1.0. Like they, it's not. It was never um, expressed to them that there is beta firmware or anything like that. So their right. expectation is that you know performance is probably going to be more or less what they experienced when the when the main thing comes out. I think that the real thing to bear in mind is that. For most of these press events, the venues are poorly lit, and um, yeah. you know you don't really get an opportunity to experience the camera in in the kinds of you know usage context that you would actually um, encounter in in your usage of it. Like it's it, no one, not that many people are are in dingy event spaces um, trying to test right. autofocus performance for this. Now that being said, the D850 does not have any issues in those same conditions. So that is a, a meaningful difference worth pointing out. But yes. again, it like you said, it's it's too early to draw any like sweeping conclusions and say, oh, the AF is bad or it's worse or it's whatever. Like it's especially because they're not consistent, right? It, yeah. Tony and Chelsea were complaining about the AF, but Chris Nichols from DP Review, he had the camera for a few days. He he could really put it through its spaces in, in a studio setup with proper lighting and everything. And he didn't have any complaints about the AF. Yeah. So uh, the fact that these don't seem to agree with each other makes me a little suspicious. Maybe there was something wrong with the unit that the Northrop's tested, or maybe it's just, I don't know. Yeah. Or something, yeah. something else we haven't thought of really could be happening here. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, honestly, I think that um, it, it seems that at the very least, the AF performance is uh, is very close to the D850, and the D850 has one of the most sophisticated autofocus engines yeah. on the planet. So, you know, yeah. if they're if they're in that ballpark, they're they're okay. Um, I think um, so. Imaging Resource had an interview with some of the Nikon engineers, and one of the things that stood out to me um, was that they made a statement about the D850 and D5 probably remaining the like a photographer's first choice for sports right. and other like demanding AF scenarios so to me that signals that you know maybe the autofocus system on uh on the Z7 and Z6 uh is smarter than the D850s but it might not be as capable in those kinds of you know sporting or um dynamic wildlife scenarios yet, right yet yeah which is yet. fine you know that's that's if okay if you think about it this is all probably down to the software and nikon's gonna need some time to figure it out i mean the sensor the the, the actual 
uh, phase detection points and contrast detection points are on the sensor. They're part of the hardware of the sensor, so that's there. The capability is there, and that sensor is probably made by Sony. I'd imagine so. Uh, if you and if you know Sony, they're pretty good at making sensors, and the A9 is a pretty clear example that you can get excellent AF performance with this type of, of hardware. For sure. So I think the if they work at it and if they're uh, diligent with the firmware updates, there's absolutely room to improve the, the, the performance down the road. Yeah, and we can also keep in mind that this is, you know, they've introduced a new mount. So these two cameras are not the only ones that are going to appear uh, with this mount. You know, we might see a more compact rangefinder style thing in the future. We might see a more sports focused body. We don't know. I mean, it's it's just these two, I think, are um, are a good starting point because they, they basically yeah. match the A7 III and A7 R3 in terms of like, do you need tremendous resolution and the absolute best technology at a higher price? Or do you need like all of the most important things with a lower megapixel count uh, at an accessible price? And you've got those two options. Yeah, and it's a pretty reasonable strategy. I mean, everyone's doing it. Yeah. Canon's doing it with the 5D Mark IV and the 5DSR. So. Yeah, and it gives you a good upgrade path that is also, I mean, in the case of um, of all of these companies, the fact that the bodies themselves are relatively similar uh, and in some cases basically identical. I think that's a great um, advantage because it means that if you're upgrading or if you're augmenting your um, you know, 24 megapixel body with something more, you don't have to relearn an entire new interface, an entire new control scheme, anything like that. It's, it's the same camera that you're already familiar with. It just does things better, uh, which is great. That's like the perfect upgrade path, yeah. regardless of brand. Yeah, and that's totally intentional because if you think about it, all the professional support programs require you to own at least two of those bodies. So. Yep. Yeah, the, keeping them consistent is just, it's a must, I think. Yeah. What do you think of the other two lenses? Because they've got, so at launch, we get that 24 to 70. It's an F4. Right. Um, and then we also get a pair of F1.8 primes. Uh, there's a 35 and there's a 50. Um, and I think there, there's been some complaints about them, but I'm just curious what you what you thought about them, first impressions. I, I find them funny because of the larger mount size, uh, I'm a little concerned that it will negate any size advantages when you make slower aperture lenses. Right. You know what I mean? Because the diameter is so big that even if you build a slower lens that in theory should be smaller, you're still going to have that big mount at the end of it. So yeah. the overall size of the lens is going to be larger than it could be if you were using a smaller mount like Sony, for example. My 35-28 is... It's tiny. It's like not having a lens almost. Yeah. And I don't know that you can do that in this mount. We'll see. I mean, it's still way too early. And in terms of these two that have been announced, I think they're fine. The The speed is reasonable. F1.8 is plenty for most uses. Uh, they appear to be very sharp. I haven't read any comments on AF or chromatic aberration or any or any of those aspects, so I can't really comment on those. But... They appear to be uh, lenses, you know, typical lenses that will prove to be very popular, I'm sure. Yeah, they seem like workhorses to me. I, I think a lot of the complaints that I was um, seeing on forums and things like that have been around their size. Right. Um, you know, people saying that an F1.8 lens, you know, you can get much smaller and much cheaper in other yeah. systems. But I think the, the fallacy there is 
<clears throat> comparing these to the um, to the Nifty Fifty, for instance, to the you yeah, know the, the entry level lenses on other systems, because while they share the same aperture, these two are clearly engineered to a very very different standard. They are clearly um, optically more sophisticated and and better. And so I don't I don't know that it's fair to um, to make that compa- comparison and say that oh I can get f one eight on another system for less because yes but yeah. <laughs> you know you're not really it's not a, a like for like comparison. Yeah, um, you, you're right. But to be fair, uh, Sony has a fifty five one eight which is also optically stellar and it is smaller, like considerably smaller. For so, sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's just. I don't know, maybe it's a different optical formula that they chose that requires the lens to be bigger and it'll be totally worth it. I don't know, but uh, we'll see. We'll see once the roadmap, you know, becomes a reality and we see how the other lenses look. If if all of them turn out to be huge, then there may be something to this. But if they start releasing cheaper and smaller lenses like everybody else, then yeah, it's going to be fine. Yeah, and I think really you have to you have to sort of decide what your main priority is because if it's size, then this is probably not the system for you just because they're right. not really like clearly they are not prioritizing size as a uh, as a primary selling point. Like yes, it's it happens to be smaller than their DSLRs, but it's still got a beefy grip. It is not a small camera overall. The lenses are not, you know, like all of these comparisons against the Sony stuff. The Sony is smaller. Like that's just a fact. And and it may well be the case that that's just always the way it will go. And so people will look at this uh, this family of, uh, of Nikon mirrorless for different reasons. They might look at it because they prefer the ergonomics, because they're more familiar to them, especially if they're coming from Nikon um, or easier adapting uh but easier time adapting Nikon lenses. So there's there's going to be trade-offs, but um, I don't I, I'm not that concerned about right. size. And and that's kind of a an ongoing bias of mine. I don't like this story that mirrorless has to be smaller and that's the only advantage and if it's not smaller then why bother going mirrorless? I think there are other yeah, important I think we're advantages. Past that. Yeah, I mean yeah, I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> I would hope so. Uh, but I'm curious about something. Um because the the new cameras make a, a an interesting choice in terms of new mount, but there's an adapter, and the the flash mount, the, the hot shoe mount is compatible with the existing flashes for Nikon, and the camera, the battery, sorry, is the same as the one in the D850. So it seems like these new cameras are struggling between targeting new customers from other brands or targeting existing Nikon customers. What do you think they're aimed at? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, I think primarily this is aimed more at Nikon users. I'm not sure that I've seen a lot in the marketing here that's designed to draw people away from other brands. I'm not. I'm not really like that. If I were a Sony shooter and I were looking at this, there's not a lot here that I would, you know, feel excited about in a way that would make me want to switch away from my from my existing Sony setup. You know, it's right. it's basically like if I were shooting Nikon and I've been keeping an eye on the mirrorless space, but I just I never quite got along with any of the other um, systems or actually I think what happened in a lot of cases, and I know this um, anecdotally from a, a number of Nikon shooters, they tried mirrorless and it was often um, it was often Fuji or Olympus and they they loved the ergonomics. They loved everything except they missed having their uh, their full frame uh, sensor and and you know the, yeah. the sort of more sophisticated 
sensor tech that tends to go into the full frame bodies. And so for them, it was never, they didn't really have an option that was viable to them for a complete switch because they didn't get along with the Sonys for whatever reason. Um, and their, you know, their Fuji system or whatever it ended up being was great, but it was always, it always felt like a secondary system. Right. And so this I feel is more, it's, it's kind of like the first thing for those people that might actually be a viable, uh, replacement or it would be if they had put a second card slot in, which is, <laughs> which is one of the other major complaints that we're seeing. Okay. Let's open the can of worms. All right. Here it goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's interesting because most of the criticism that uh, these cameras are facing out there, uh, it seems like they're trying to match the A7R3 and the A7 III, you know, feature for feature. You have a high res uh, camera, you have a lower res camera, both with great, uh, burst speeds and everything. There's very minor differences between the two, but there are some notable differences. And one of them is, like you said, the, the Nikons only have one XQD card slot instead of two SD card slots in the in the Sonys. Yeah. And that appears to be a deal breaker for many people. I think that's way overblown. Uh, if you think about it, Nobody has ever been able to match Sony feature for feature because Sony is just the kitchen sink company. They yep. throw everything at every camera that they make. Yep. <laughs> and everybody has been competing just fine up, up until now. I don't see many reasons to think that this is going to be any different. Uh, even Sony cameras didn't have two SD card slots as late as last year. So let's not pretend that all of a sudden now it's a you like you can't do any real work without dual SD card slots. That's just not the case. I mean, it's it would be better if they had it for sure, but I think people are reading again way too much into it. Of course, if I were a, a wedding photographer and, and it was one of these cases where if you lose the entire shooting, you're probably gonna lose a customer for good. Uh, yeah, I'd be concerned, but let's not forget wedding photographers take backup bodies they have second and third shooters it would have to be like a catastrophic cascading failure to ruin all of those cards on the very same day so chances are it's going to be fine even if one of them fails yeah this all this is all about risk management and and yeah. it's definitely i mean wedding photography is where this becomes the most um concerning because even if you have backup bodies if one of the bodies was the one that you caught the first kiss on, and that's the one that goes. It doesn't matter if you've got the second and third kiss on the, you know, on your backup right. body. Like it's there. There's... Yeah, but who's gonna know if it was the second or the third? Yeah, you just tell them it was the first, and that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know what I mean. Like it's <laughs> there are there are very legitimate reasons for wanting dual card slots, and I think what bothered people is not so much that um, the, it's basically that other all almost every other company that's positioning their mirrorless cameras as um, professional worthy. So all of the Fujis, right. all of the Olympus cameras, like even if the sensor is smaller, even if, you know, otherwise there are discrepancies, they've all now got dual card slots. So that seems to have just become a sort of accepted standard of uh, safety, of backup, of whatever. Uh, it just it's part of imaging technology right now. And yeah, I, I agree. I do think it's a little... You know, perhaps it's a little overly cautious. Perhaps it's something that was done more for marketing reasons than for pragmatic reasons. Because realistically, the 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 rate of failure for a good card is very low. But it is there. It is a possibility. It's it's only a matter of time before it happens to you. And all these people yeah. anecdotally saying, oh, "I've never had a card fail." Like that's great. That's the same as people saying they've never had a hard drive fail. It's not. It's a matter of when, uh, not if. You know. So 
it's I, I understand the concern. Right now, I mean, I'm not a professional shooter, but I don't have my camera doesn't have dual SD card slots, and if I had lost the entire trip, I would have been very pissed off. Yeah. Uh, luckily, it's never happened to me. Knock on wood, you know. But yeah, it's definitely a concern, and it is disappointing that they're releasing a camera in 2018 without meeting all of the table stakes, so to speak, because this is absolutely, uh, the bar had been set ever since the X-T2 was released and the X-Pro2 was released and they sported dual SD cards and then everybody else followed exactly. along, like Olympus followed along. Well, I don't remember which one of those two came out first, but it doesn't really matter. Everybody in the mirrorless industry now has flagship models that have dual SD card slots. Exactly. And to see Nikon, who are clearly aiming at the professional market, miss that spot, is it is disappointing. There's just no way around it. But it's not a deal breaker. It's not like these cameras are dead in the water before they even reach the market. No, know? no. I, I think mean, there's that, room for them. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, that's that's an overblown reaction. But I'm just saying there are there is a segment in the market there who would have otherwise, you know, found these perfect replacements for their D750s and D800s and D810s and whatever else they're shooting. Uh, you know, all, all the Canon folks who are fed up with, you know, being behind on the sensor game. Uh, but if if that is a concern of theirs, then they're not going to be able to adopt these as their primary cameras. These might become their backup cameras, which is also yeah. fine. You know, like if your if your main shooter is a D850, that's a you know that's a bulky, that's a heavy camera. Maybe instead of having a second one as your as your B cam, you've got one of these, and and that gives you yeah. And I, I was going to say that gives you a weight advantage. It gives you some you know the, the EVF advantages and IBIS. Like that's we didn't even mention that, but these have five axis stabilization, like the Sony's, like the. Uh, you know, other flagship mirrorless bodies. So there there are clear advantages over DSLRs here. Um, and even the fact that the card slot is, is XQD is an interesting choice. Um, Nikon is now making their own, or at least they have Nikon branded ones. I'm not actually sure if they're making them, but um, they're clearly pushing towards that as the new medium of choice for them. Yeah, and it makes sense. And th let's be honest here. If a photographer is so cautious and so so demanding about their equipment that they're refusing to shoot with a camera that doesn't have dual card slots, they're probably not going to want to shoot with adapted lenses. Yeah. And there's really not much in the way of native lenses yet. So for those people who are so demanding, this is a non-starter from, from the very beginning until yep. they build the lens roadmap. And that's why I think this is not so important right now. Let's give them time to build uh, a competent lens lineup and if by then they still don't have a body that has dual card slots, then maybe that's the time to become a little bit more concerned about it. But right now it's still early days. I think there's other places where they uh, needed to focus their energy and their resources before the dual card slots. And I think it's it's the right choice, even if I would have liked to see dual cards. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that's a fair way of looking at it. And and it's promising. Like, again, this is a it's been a long time since a whole new mount, a whole new system has has hit the market. So that it's exciting just in and of itself. Um, and I, I'm curious to see where they go. And like we were saying right at the beginning, I'm curious to see how other people respond, because to me, like looking at these two, the Z6 in particular seems like a clear, you know, it's it's obviously competing with the a7 III, but it's also competing with cameras like the 6D Mark II, which same deal, right. full frame, a little bit lighter, a little bit, you know, less sophisticated than the big brother um, single card slot. Uh, so seeing how everyone else is going to react to now having that degree of, of technological sophistication at a much lower price point than, than we expected before. I mean, the a7 III 
really upended people's expectations for pricing. Yeah. And I think that's something that everybody's going to struggle with because up until that point, we were seeing prices going up pretty much across the board for everything from every manufacturer, right? Like cameras got more expensive, lenses got more expensive. And then suddenly here comes the a7 III and it's priced at a, you know, at a point that, that puts it in no brainer territory as far as price versus performance. Um, and that's obviously why they're flying off the shelves even now, but seeing how um, everyone else is going to react and particularly Canon, right? Because as much as Sony has, has really taken the lead and has been incredible in how quickly they've built out a system, when you experience photography and you discuss photography in the world, for a lot of people, that's still a discussion of Canon or Nikon. You know, those are the the, the mindshare leads still. And yeah. so seeing how Canon responds to this, or not even responds, because realistically, they've been working on stuff for years already. So it's more it's more about how their offering is going to be positioned, who they're going to be aiming at. Yeah, and let's not, let's not forget that Sony has been piggybacking on Canon lens support for years. Yeah. Like, from day one, they built their own adapter for their A-mount line of lenses, uh, but nobody really used those with the E-mount cameras. Everybody used Canon lenses because they worked really well with the Metabones adapter. So yeah, it's it's very important to, ha to have a comprehensive uh, lineup of lenses that can be used with your camera. And it's no coincidence, I'm really sure it's no coincidence that Sony uh, made sure Canon lenses worked well with their cameras. Oh, Let's yeah. just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's not a that's not a secret. I'm I'm actually excited to see where Sony goes now. Mm -hmm. That they have someone pushing them. Because for many years they've been the only ones, you know, advancing the state of the art. I think they they knew they always knew that Nikon and Canon would eventually join the fight. And they've just trying to gain as much of a lead as they possibly could. Uh, and I think they did they did great. Oh, they totally did. I, I think that they can feel, they can sort of rest easy, at least from the Nikon announcement, that they're not going to suddenly lose a bunch of sales. Um, I think yeah. that Sony is very well positioned. They're just fine. And now now that they have a better understanding of how, I mean, they don't know for Canon yet, but by the end of the year, they'll know how their two major competitors are positioning their mirrorless offering. And so they'll be able to develop the next generation in a way that right. um, that that sort of builds a clear divide so that you're not just de deciding based on brand, you know, because right now, if you're looking at the, the Nikon and Sony, the bodies themselves are so, so similar in their capabilities that it's almost irrelevant which you choose. So it's about the ecosystem. It's about the, the additional stuff that they can offer. And I feel like Sony is, uh, because they have this tremendous technological prowess, they'll be able to say, okay, well, these guys are focusing on those aspects. Let's use our, our magical powers to introduce you know, entirely new features and entirely new capabilities that they haven't even thought of yet, that they're not even looking at. And that will be the major differentiator for the A7 Mark IV and uh, whatever else they decide to do. Yeah. And I think an important factor is that they finally got Sigma and Tamron to get to, you know, to start making E-mount lenses, yeah. uh, which yeah. was, which was what was missing. I mean, Sony was always ready to compete at the higher level of the market because they're good at that. But they struggle with making low-cost lenses, and that's where third-party manufacturers come in. So it, it was, I think it was game-changing for them to have Sigma especially release the full lineup of art lenses, uh, you know, in a native A-mount version. Yeah, it's been a big year for Sony. Yeah, definitely. It's been a big year for everyone, really, because 
we had big announcements for pretty much from pretty much everybody mm-hmm.